grab your Bible, everyone, and join me in John chapter 18, verse 28 is where we're going to be starting as we continue our sermon series, walking through the gospel of John that we've been in for uh, some time now. Again, 18 uh, verse 28 is where we'll be. If you need a Bible, there should be some on the seats in front of you, and we'll have the words on the screen if all else fails. Uh, My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here and just want to welcome you and say that we're so glad that you're here, that you're with us this morning. Uh, And a special thank you, of course, to uh, Andre and Pastor Ian for preaching the last uh, two weeks. It was great to hear from them and have some different voices up here. And I was able to have some vacation and rest and uh, time away. And I'm back feeling refreshed and glad to be with you this morning. So uh, with that, let's pray and then we'll jump in together. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, We come just in in humility, Lord, asking for you to teach us. Would you uh, shape us, guide us, Lord? We uh, need to uh, sit at your feet and hear your voice. And so, God, would you teach us? Would you come and have your way? Help us by your spirit to understand these things that we read and apply them to our lives. Lord, we give you this time and we look to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we're getting ready to jump into John 18, um, you probably know this already. In, in any environment that you're in, whether it's you know a, a job, your family, a uh, city that you live in, some hobby club, mom's group, sports team that you're a part of, there's there's a certain culture or way of operating that goes with it, right? But sometimes it takes us a while to learn the customs and the culture and the ways of that new environment. And maybe some of you, for example, feel that at church, right? You come into a church or to a new church and you're like still learning how things operate here. And so it's like, when do I sit and, and when do I stand? And do we clap here? Do we, do I raise a hand? Do, do we raise two hands? No, nope, keep the hands down. Like where do, where do the hands go? Right. What's, what's uh, normal to wear or, or to say or, or not to say, right? How do we operate in this environment? Uh, Or for example, I worked at Chick-fil-A back in Denver when we lived there. And if you know Chick-fil-A, you know that the employees there have a certain culture and certain expectations that go along with their role. For example, when you say thank you to someone who works at Chick-fil-A, they respond with, my pleasure. Right. right. There's this culture, these expectations that go with working at Chick-fil-A. And we would always know, like, like when new people came on at Chick-fil-A, we could always tell really easily that they were new because someone would say, thank you. And then they would say, like, no problem. Or, or they would say, yeah, hmm, just, you know, head nod or, or, or nothing. Right. Because they hadn't quite learned yet the, the, the culture, the expectations, the assumptions that went with this new environment. Or this one, I, I hesitate to even share this. It's going to make me look bad. But I used to think it, it wasn't a big deal to let your dog go to the bathroom on someone else's lawn. Okay, I know. And if, I know. I know. <laughs> if you want to send me an email, you can. Send me your outrage. I still wonder sometimes how big of a deal it is. They're like, they're a dog. You know, that's what they do. But um, I learned in the Scrayback household, right? As a, as a married man in our family, my wife informed me that is not something that we do. Okay? That is not Okay to let your dog go to the bathroom on someone else's lawn. And so now we are a family. I've adjusted to this new culture and we do not do that. Usually. (laughs) But you see what, you see what I'm saying with, with any group, any environment uh, that we're a part of, there are certain uh, assumptions, a culture, expectations about how things work. But what happens is we, we often will bring in our old assumptions 
from, from other groups or things that we've learned in life. We bring in all of our old assumptions and expectations and baggage to our new environment and our new reality. And so there's this process that has to happen of, of, of sorting out, okay, what of our old assumptions stays what do we keep and hold on to? And what do we say? No, actually, we don't do that here any longer, right? We're going to move away from that. And the same is true when it comes to following Jesus, right? We all have our assumptions about the world, what is good, what is true and right. We, we've learned through life ways of navigating the world. And then we meet Jesus, and he says to us, Hey, welcome to my kingdom. And in my kingdom, uh, there's a new way, right, to operate, a new way to navigate the world. And so some of those things you've learned are good and right and true and beautiful and hold on to those things. But there are other things you've learned uh, that need to change. There's other assumptions you've brought in that, that don't reflect the kingdom and we need to turn from them. And so we're all in this process of learning the culture of the kingdom. And since it all starts at the top, any culture does, we have to ask, well, what, what is our king like? What is Jesus our king like? And then in light of that, how does he call us as members of his kingdom to operate? That's the question we're looking at this morning. I mean, you see it on display at the end of chapter 18 with Jesus on trial here. We heard it aloud, but I want to read these verses again, starting in verse 28. We see is then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone. They objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. So see how the scene unfolds early in the morning. It's, it's good Friday and Jesus has been arrested. He's been questioned by the Jewish leaders. And now he's brought to Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea. And Pilate's a key character in the story here. We're going to see a lot of activity from him here. And he appears in all four gospels he's mentioned. He was in Jerusalem at this time of year because he wanted to make sure that order was maintained during the time of Passover, right? It's this Jewish feast and festival and celebration. Things could get a little rowdy. So he wanted there to be a clear Roman presence there to ensure peace and order, and as the Roman governor in Judea, he had certain jurisdiction and power in the region. And the Jewish leaders knew that. And so you see them coming to him in verse 31. They want to execute Jesus, but they need Pilate to sign off on it. Right? Uh, internal Jewish squabbles could be handled by the leaders of the Jews. But when it rose to uh, execution level, they had to get outside authority. They had to bring that to Rome. And so Pilate was not known to be very cooperative with the Jews very often, but clamoring outside a Roman governor's residence, even if it's a temporary residence, in large numbers could prove to be effective because he wanted to avoid a riot. He didn't want a riot on his hands, and so he maybe would be more likely to give them their way. And so that's what they're attempting here. And you see in verse 31, at first his impulse is to push this back on the Jews. Hey, you guys deal with this. I don't want any part of this. Deal with it yourselves. But they, to, to pique his interest, 
And to get Rome's attention, they have to make the claim, the crime, something of interest to them. They have to present Jesus as a threat, really, to the empire. He's claiming to be a king. He's committing treason against Caesar. So Pilate, you have to squash this, they're saying. And so you see the real question Pilate has, verse 33, as he moves inside the palace from the crowd to go talk to Jesus. Verse 33 says, Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? That's the question. That's the the idea, the theme that really this whole narrative revolves around Jesus, the king. Now, we know, having followed along and read through John so far, that the answer is, yes, of course, Jesus is the king of the Jews. Not only that, but the king of the whole world. We've seen his miracles. We've seen his authoritative teaching. We've seen him enter Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and be uh, greeted with shouts of Hosanna and signs of royalty. We've seen him be anointed as king. We've seen him talk about his kingdom and how to enter it back in John 3. And so really the question is not, uh, is Jesus the king? Because we know that he is, but, but what kind of king is he? And then what does that mean for us if we follow this king and live in his kingdom? And so look at how Jesus responds. Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. So Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? And that's his job, right? To investigate this claim. If there is an uprising, a a rival king, ruler that he has to deal with and he needs to know so he can rule in this situation and squash it. But Jesus in response sort of jabs at Pilate you see in these early verses, right? Is this your own idea, verse 34? Or are these religious leaders just manipulating you is essentially what he's asking And Pilate says, hey, look, am I a Jew? No. So this is your own people turning you over. So what'd you do to deserve this? Is this true or not? Are you really what they say you are? It's a valid question. And look at Jesus' response in verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. So his answer is essentially, yes, But no, but yes. That's the sort of response we have here. Yes, I am the king, but I'm not the sort of king that you have in mind, Pilate. I'm a completely different kind of king, he's saying. My kingdom is not of this world. It's from a different place. It's from a different order. It's not from here, in other words, like other kingdoms are. In the sense that other kingdoms require human strength to protect and grow and preserve. They require fighting and the sword to protect. And so in a sense, the empire really doesn't have to worry. You know, Caesar can keep running his little Roman operation over there. That's fine because Jesus has much bigger aspirations. So that's not how my kingdom is protected. 
how my kingdom advances is different from your human picture of how a kingdom operates. My kingdom is not of this world. Now to stop here a moment and think, because sometimes there's confusion around this phrase. Make no mistake. The inbreaking of the kingdom of God affects every area of life, private and public. It all belongs to him. Jesus has dominion over all of it. And so Jesus is not saying, you know, I don't really have dominion here. That's not what he's saying. Don't hear me advocating for some purely private uh, internal faith that doesn't work itself out in the world. I mean, how could it not? So Jesus isn't saying, no, we have no, you know, no business to worry about this world or this life or, or governments or leaders or anything like that. He's not saying don't care about that. But the point is that the kingdom of God does not depend on political power. And it's not threatened by any ruler. It crosses all borders. It's on display even when Jesus is arrested and being put to death. It's not of this world in the sense that its source and origin is not in this world and human strength and human power. Instead, his authority is from above. And you see this in the qualifier he gives in verse 36. If it were, if my kingdom were of this world, he says, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. Which ironically, Peter tried to do a few verses ago, chopping a guy's ear off. Remember that? But he got rebuked for it, right? And Jesus clearly said, hey, that's not how we are going to operate. Right? We do not depend on human power. His kingdom is not from this world. It's not sustained by fighting with swords. It's not dependent upon military prowess. It's not threatened by Caesar or any other king or ruler. Instead, the kingdom of God advances and flourishes by the power of the spirit and the word of God in the hearts of his people. Like we talked about earlier, think about the kingdom. What happens is we enter the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus, but we've brought in all our old assumptions and baggage and expectations about how a kingdom is supposed to work about this new environment where we think it's going to be just like all the others we've been a part of before. And Jesus has to remind each of us, Hey, um, glad you're here, but that's not how we operate. Right? Hey, glad you're here, but, but we uh, don't really do that sort of thing. Or that's not the way we're going to win and advance the kingdom. It's not by earthly human means. It's not by your strength or your you know, displays of power or your wealth or your good looks or the, the ways of the world that's really going to move this thing forward. I read this week of a, a pastor reflecting on this sort of idea and he, he shared this story. I want you to hear his words. He said, years ago, I knew a man more than double my age who helped me enormously in some areas of doctrine but as I spent time with him, I noticed that his speech was invariably very critical of others. Indeed, he was biting in his criticism. And I found that after I was with him for a while, I felt polluted in mind and heart. I'm not sure how to even express how I felt. I just knew that it was not good for my soul to be with him. And so over time, I allowed our friendship to die. Now social media, which feeds on outrage and biting sarcasm has heightened this problem. 
Unlike a butterfly, we should not expect that after spending a lifetime immersed in negativity and anger, that we emerge from such a cocoon into the sunlight of sweetness and biblical meekness. And I share that because I think it's a really helpful example of how we sometimes, even as Christians, can hold on to the posture and the tactics and the assumptions and the, and the values of the world. Though, though we're in the kingdom, we keep acting and thinking like the world thinks. And we think we're being helpful by being critical. And maybe this guy probably thinks, well, this is what people need. They need to hear the truth. They need to be corrected. They need to be criticized. You need to be warned and know about what's out there. And in some sense, of course, that's, that's true. We need to be discerning and wise. But this man had allowed bitterness and anger and an overly critical spirit to take over so that he thought he was helping the kingdom when really he was harmful to the kingdom. Jesus says, that's, that's not how my people, how my kingdom needs to operate. That's not how we're going to win and advance the kingdom. Jesus is trying to help us see friends, make no mistake. He says, I'm a different kind of king. This is a different kind of kingdom. And so what's valuable in this kingdom is not strength or wealth or fighting power. It's, it's humility and dependence and meekness and gentleness and patience and love and seeking peace, not repaying evil for evil, but doing good. This kingdom is marked by faith and the power of God, by prayer. And if that's how the kingdom advances, and that's what this otherworldly kingdom is marked by, then think about what or who is valuable in the kingdom of God. I mean, there's a whole different value system here to look at. Because in human terms, think about it. If we want to build a kingdom and we want to build an empire, well, we want, we want the strong we want the influential, we want the wealthy, we want the sharp, we want the, the successful people, right? If you're picking a team in sports, who do you pick? The most athletic people, right? The strongest people, the most talented and gifted people. You want them on your side. That's how you build a, a team or a kingdom, right? And Jesus is trying to help us see this is a totally different kind of kingdom with different values, he says, you know, my kingdom isn't really like that. And so that's really good news for, you know, people like us. The weak, the weary, those who stumble and fail and fall, the dependent, those who need rest. Jesus says, yeah, that's, that's the sort of people I want in my kingdom. There's this great song I've been listening to uh, this week, worship song called I Don't Have Much. And the chorus of the song is really simple. It's really beautiful though. It says, I don't have much. I don't have much, but, but I have a heart that beats for you. And I have a life that I'll give to you. And that's what perfectly captures the heart of the kingdom, the essence of the kingdom that we come and you say, you know, I don't have much. Yeah, I don't have much to offer uh, but here's my heart and here's my life, Jesus. Would you take it and use it? 
Jesus kind of pointed out, that's, that's the posture I want. That's, that's what my kingdom is about. It's not of this world. It doesn't operate the way other kingdoms do. Now, look what happens next. Verse 37. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king? In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So Pilate is he's picking up on what Jesus is saying, right? Okay, you're claiming to be a king. There are claims to authority. Jesus is owning his identity as the king, but he still wants to see more about how this kingship and kingdom is defined. And he starts talking about truth. The reason I came into the world, he says, is to testify to the truth. Now, this reminds us of a few things. First, of course, the doctrine of the incarnation, right? He came into the world. Reminds us that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. He came from heaven to display the truth and reveal to the world who God is and what God is like and what's true about us, that there is a God who created all things, that we are to surrender ourselves fully to him and that God the Father sent his son into the world to save and redeem the world, that Jesus would come to die on the cross for our sin, save us from death and hell, that we can't save ourselves. We actually needed help from outside the world to come into our world and rescue us. And we are then to cast ourselves on the mercy and grace of God shown to us in Christ that we're dead, but can be made alive in Jesus. Saying, I came into the world to testify to the truth. Again, verse 37 Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And so notice the connections here with his kingdom and his identity as a king. He's saying, hey, my kingdom is not made up of people from, you know, one specific region or one specific race or ethnicity or nationality or one specific class or socioeconomic status. But my kingdom is made up of who? Everyone who embraces the truth. Jesus has told us he is the truth. And so whoever wants to know the truth and be on the side of truth will listen to him. And he's saying that's part of why you don't have to fight with swords to protect the kingdom because you can't fight the truth with a sword or a tank. Right? A, a dictator and his militia can't kick down your door and come inside and steal the truth. Right? So there's not a threat here. I remember up at Hume Lake, I uh, went to camp there when I was in high school every year. So students about to go to camp, what's up, summer camp? It's, it's the best. Um, you're not going to Hume, you're going to Genes Park. It's awesome. It's going to be a blast. But I remember in my time at summer camp on the lake there at Hume, there was this sign, a uh, big wooden sign, and it simply said, God is. That's all it said. God is. This is simple powerful reminder of the presence and existence of God. He simply is. He is the truth. The truth of who God is cannot be threatened or changed. He is and always will be. And so there's a rest. There's a stability that comes when we realize this. Jesus is the king of truth. But we have to realize, though, that if Jesus came to testify to the truth, he says, to reveal the truth, then there is this objective reality that goes with following him. You see that? Meaning with Jesus, we're not just talking about some like subjective spiritual experience, some sort of, you know, like squishy, come, you know, believe whatever you want and whatever God is to you, that's what he is. And just, you know, make it up as you go sort of faith. 
We're talking about objective reality. We're talking about events, first of all, in history that really happened. We're talking about a Jesus who really exists. He's real. And he's told us who he is and what he's like in his word. It's not like just some story we're making up as we go. So why as often as I can, I want to encourage people, if you have doubts or questions, just to, to read scripture, to read good scholarly works of history that point to the objective nature of these events in history. Bring your questions. There are good answers. You can dig into this story and realize it's true. But with Jesus' words here, again, we're not just talking about squishy, subjective, believe whatever you want. There's a reality of objective truth. And Jesus says, I am the truth. And my word is the truth. And I'm going to show you what is really true about God and really true about the world. But there's an implication here, right? Think about this. Uh, He says, everyone who listens to me basically is on the side of truth. But the implication then is that not everyone listens to him. Right? There's like a, another option, and that's to reject Jesus and his words and, and the truth and, and believe things instead that aren't true and build our lives on things that are partial truths or lies. The, the world's leading expert on deception uh, is named Dr. Timothy Levine, and he spent years conducting hundreds of interviews with CIA agents and, and police officers and others and to understand deception and lies and lie detection, right? How good are we at detecting lies? And he concludes after all this study and research, he says this, that even the most intelligent human beings are, and I quote, terrible at lie detection. So even the most intelligent human beings are terrible at detecting lies. Even though we like to think, we like to think that we're, we're pretty discerning people, right? Like, no, I, I wouldn't be fooled by something like that. We're, we're objective. We are rational. We are critical thinkers. We can tell truth from lie. And his study is basically like, no, <laughs> you're really not good at it. Uh, we're all easily deceived because we're, we're emotional beings. We're, we're relational beings. We're often easily manipulated. And so it can be really hard for us to discern what is true and what is not. Now, that doesn't mean we just throw up our hands and say, well, who knows anyways? No, there, there is truth and we can work towards it, but we need to be careful. And we need to be careful that we're not deceived. Because often what happens is we buy into these assumptions kind of like floating around in the world. And we're like, well, of course, that's just how the world works, right? Like the, the narrative out maybe in, in the media or in what, social media or movies or whatever is so strong in certain ways. We're like, well, of, of course, that's how the world works. Right? We, we don't even in question it, but what happens is we, we, get, we start to build our lives not on the truth of Jesus and the word of God, but on certain cultural assumptions that maybe sound good or sound right in our modern day, but they lead to death. You know, things like, well, there's, there's no God. You know, I mean, come on. Right? We know, you know, science or DNA or whatever tells us there's no God. So yeah, why do you believe in this like silly myth sort of thing? Or people say, you know, I mean, if there is a God, he's, just, he's, really wants you to be happy. That's like his primary, you know, goal. And so just like, do whatever makes you happy. Like, don't, don't worry about what he says about it. Just, just do what you want. Um, or, Hey, you, you, you know how to be really happy. You have to pursue your deepest desires. So whenever, whatever pops up, you just run after it and you have to have it. If you don't have it, you're not going to be fulfilled. So just go chase it. That's how you're going to be really happy and fulfilled in life. 
say things like you're, you're a good person. So you don't, you don't really need Jesus. This whole sin thing is kind of like dated and judgment for sin. Like that's really old school. And we're like past all that now, you know, things like that. They're like in a modern to a modern person, maybe it's like, well, well, yeah, of course that's, that makes sense. But of course we know from the truth of scripture that none of those things are true. And, and to talk about these and point these out, it's not like, it's like, Hey, just no big deal. You know, believe whatever you want. Life's going to work out anyways. I mean, as someone else has said, um, when you go against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. Right. And so again, don't, don't hear me as like, you know, angry preacher, man. This is like really concerned preacher, man saying like, it's, it's possible to build our lives on something false. And in doing so, it's going to lead to destruction and chaos and, and not flourishing. Right? We, if we go against the grain of the universe, if we live in ways that go against how God has set things up, relationally, morally, in terms of truth, then it's, it's going to lead to destruction in our lives. And of course, there's the eternal <laughs> question of judgment, standing before a holy God one day, facing the reality of hell. But we're just, even just talking about in this life, the dysfunction and chaos and lack of flourishing that comes if we build our lives based on and make our decisions based on false assumptions. So Jesus says, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And, and here's the reality. As, as like objective and independent as sometimes we like to think we are, we all um, have our worldview shaped by people from outside of us. Right? We all kind of receive our value systems, whether it's from, from our parents or from our friends, or you're like, no, I'm not influenced by my parents. I, you know, then whatever, like, you know, old book, philosopher, French philosopher you read, you know, and that, that influenced you or whatever. We all are shaped and influenced by the outside in terms of what is true and good and how to make decisions and what the good life looks like. They were all shaped and formed by the outside. And so the question is not, will others shape us and direct how we think and live, but, but who will we allow to shape us? And so Jesus simply comes to us in this and says, well, w- would you trust me that I know how to lead you to life better than these other sources? So I know your friends are like saying this and I know your parents are saying this and I know you got like really quippy, like social media slogans you're hearing from a lot of people and all these like one-liners out there. And I know like kind of the movies are presenting things this way, but would, would you trust that my word and my ways are able to lead you to life better than those other sources? Because right, you have to make a choice. Where are you going to put your money? Who are you going to believe and trust about how to navigate the world? Will it be Jesus, you know, on his lasting word that is, as, uh, is bearing fruit uh, in all uh, cultures, every continent, throughout all centuries? Or would you say, you know, this like modern way of looking at the world that has barely been around for 10 years that my friend on Instagram is really into, you know, that's really like where I'm going to put my money. Think about it. Jesus says, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Will we build our life on his truth and his way. Now there's a last piece here. I want you to see in verse 38. Pilate responds, verse 38. What is truth? Retorted Pilate. He kind of just scoffs at Jesus. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. 
But it's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. So notice what's going on here. Pilate scoffs at Jesus. What is truth? In a very kind of modern day tone. You know, truth, who really knows? Objection, this is, this is silly, whatever. And he's like, I'm done. And he, Pilate goes outside. You notice the narrative has shifted from outside the Jewish leaders approach with Jesus. Uh, and then Pilate and Jesus have this private conversation inside. And now we shifted back. Pilate goes outside to the Jewish leaders and the crowd gather there. And he says what? Hey, I find no basis for charge against this man. Right? Rome isn't worried about this Jesus, king of the Jews. His innocence actually would be repeated multiple times throughout the narrative. Rome's not worried, Pilate says. His verdict is in. But he says, I'll make you a deal. And there was this custom at the time of Passover, the text tells us, that one prisoner will be released to you. So you guys get to choose. Do you want this Jesus back, this king of the Jews? Or not. Verse 39, it's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? I think this is a pretty incredible opportunity. Maybe they're going to say yes. Maybe Jesus is going to go free. But then we're introduced to this, this criminal, this man named Barabbas. His name means son of a father. And he, it tells us, had taken part in an uprising, in an insurrection. He, I mean, he was a true c- criminal. Very likely he was a murderer. He was definitely guilty, without a doubt. And look what happens, verse 40. They shouted back, no, not him, not Jesus, meaning give us Barabbas. Guys, this, this part of the story, these events, it's just so, I, it's so powerful. I really want, just, if you've been sleeping, just wake up, just like right now. Just, let's just really look at what's going on. I really want you to see this. Track with me. Jesus has told us, hey, he's a different kind of king. My kingdom is not of this world. And he says, I'm the king of truth. And he's also going to show us here, he's the king of substitution. Because what's going to happen here is he, he trades places. Do you see it with Barabbas? And Barabbas goes free while Jesus is condemned. Think about this picture. There's tragedy and beauty here at the same time. Okay. Tragedy in, in the sense of just irony that the people, the leaders would be so blind and so corrupt that they would rather have Barabbas, a true criminal go free. They would rather have him released to them than Jesus. They would rather have Barabbas, son of a father, than Jesus, the true son of the father. And it shows us just how blind, how lost, how dark our sinful hearts can be that we can get it so wrong. Claiming to be wise, we become fools. Thinking we can see we're actually blind. So it's so tragic to see this unfold. But, There's also beauty here because picture this. If you were Barabbas, put your place, put yourself in the place of Barabbas in his shoes or sandals, 
whatever he's wearing back then. Think about it. You're in prison. You're guilty without question. You're a convicted criminal. You're facing your execution. You deserve death. And it's coming. You have shackles and chains on your limbs. Your time is short and you're sitting there and you hear the guard drawing near. You say, well, this is it. To my death I go as I deserve. But as the guard approaches, rather than leading you out of the cell and away to your death, he brings a key and your chains drop to the floor. He says, Barabbas, you're free to go. And as you walk out of that cell into freedom, you walk past this Jesus, this sinless one who was not deserving of death. And he is going to go to his death instead of you. You see the picture of the gospel on display here? You see that you're Barabbas? I'm Barabbas. And all four gospels were given this picture of substitution here where we see Barabbas sinful like us, deserving death and judgment like us, in chains like us. And Jesus comes and he takes our place and he sets us free, even though we did nothing to deserve it. He gives it to us. What a king. And so we worship this king who is not off on his throne somewhere, distant and uninterested with your life and your future and your eternity. We don't serve a king who's too busy to be bothered, who's cold and calloused and far off. We serve a king who came to us and would go to his death for us so that we could be forgiven and set free. And friends, this is the heart of the gospel. I really want you to see this because outside of this, we have no hope. Outside of Christ taking our place, dying for us, we're we're left with this impossible burden to try and save ourselves and justify ourselves and set ourselves free. We, uh, Amber and I were watching this week, this documentary on Netflix about the FLDS, this fundamentalist Latter-day Saints group. Um, And maybe you've seen it or seen other documentaries like it, where it follows these kind of cult religious groups. And we'll really, I mean, a lot of things stood out, believe me. Uh, But one of the things that stood out was just how fear is used to manipulate these people that it keeps them in their group. There's this, this constant fear of, Uh, I have to perform. I have to obey. I have to measure up. I can't step out of line. There's no grace. There's just earn it. Perfection. You have to be good or else you're out in the present and in eternity. And really it's, I mean, you can look at this group or you can look at uh, any other kind of, you know, religious approach. And it's often the same thing. There's just this fear, this burden of performance, earn it, right? Jump through the hoops. Don't disobey and you'll, you'll get in if the good outweighs the bad. And it just puts people under this crushing burden, this crushing law. 
They're so afraid. And so I just want you to see this picture of what the Christian gospel is. That that you're going to go free, not because of earning it, not because of what you did or your righteousness, but you're going to go free through faith in Christ. And he's going to go to the cross. He's going to take your place where you deserve to go, but he's going to take it all upon himself. And so that your free gift of life is given through his mercy and his grace simply by putting your faith in Jesus and receiving it. Do you see how freeing that is? Do you see how radically different that is from any other approach out there? Come and simply receive what Jesus has done for you. Let the chains come off. Walk into the freedom and the new life that he alone can give you. And if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Christ, would love to talk with you after the service and pray with you and encourage you in how to make that decision. So here, according to this custom, Pilate lets Barabbas go free and Jesus go to his death. But little did Pilate know or little did the Jews there realize that God himself had this custom he was about to implement on that very day involving the release of prisoners already convicted, declared guilty, sentenced to death. That God was instituting his own custom of freedom through the redemptive power of Christ, through his sacrifice and love for the world, for whoever would trust in him, the King. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we come to you and we Lord, we're just humbled before you as we see your love, as we see your willingness to go to the cross for us. We see, as Pilate says, there's no uh, sin within you. There's no reason to condemn you. There's no, uh, you're innocent, Lord. And yet you took our place. We were guilty. We deserve death and judgment. And yet you took our place. You set us free, Jesus. You are the way, the truth, and the life. There's no one like you. And so first, Lord, we just celebrate the fact of who you are in the gospel. Thank you. And Lord, now we also reflect on this reality that you say your kingdom is not of this world. And so, Lord, help us to live as citizens of your kingdom in a way that reflects the heart and values of you, our king. Help us throw off our old assumptions about power, about how kingdoms work, about how to win, about how to preserve or advance your kingdom and help us instead embrace your ways, guided by your spirit. Would we display the fruit of the spirit in our lives? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And now, Lord, we just continue to worship you and sing to you and celebrate who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.